Thank you very much, Anna, and, th and thank you both Anna and, and Brian for the uh, organising this very, very good, excellent conference. So, yes, that's the title. Uh, it is a bit tentative, as you can see. Um, there will be some um, uh, convergence between what I say and, and some other speakers, uh, particularly uh, in some ways with uh, Peter Simons and in others, I think, with John Heil, uh, but also some, some differences. So I'll just uh, um, make a start. Um, okay, so there are certainly relational truths, but there may well be no relational truth makers. And that will be the message of this paper. So here I'm taking it that truths are propositions, or at least that propositions are the primary truth bearers, and that uh, necessarily any proposition is either true or else false. I also take it that propositions are abstract entities, and I know that both Peter and John would disagree with me on this, but I take propositions to be abstract entities possessing a formal structure. That is to say, every proposition has a logical form. Uh, but since my main concern is not with truth bearers, I shall say relatively little more about their nature here. As for truth makers, I think that if, if an entity E is a truth maker for a proposition P, then uh, E's existence metaphysically necessitates P's truth. And here I say if, not if and only if, because uh, the stronger claim has implausible consequences, such as that any entity, whatever, is um, a truth maker of a necessary truth. A closer approximation to my own preferred definition of the truth-making relation would be to say that an entity E is a truth-maker for a proposition P if and only if it is part of the essence of P that P is true if E exists. And this is a view I have developed elsewhere. You see already that I'm committed to essentialism and I don't mind that. Mine is a kind of Feynian type essentialism. Um, as for the question of whether every truth has a truth maker, I am skeptical about that, as was Peter, um, since I'm doubtful, for instance, whether uh, negative truths require truth makers. I should also say that I take some truths to be their own truth makers, uh, purely logical truths falling into this category. And this is because I take it to be part of the essence of any purely logical truth that it is true if it exists. Although this is in a way a trivial case of truth-making since I also take such truths to exist necessarily. Whence it's part of the essence of such a truth simply that it is true, quite unconditionally. Um, of course, although I regard tr uh, propositions as the primary truth-bearers, it's frequently convenient to discuss them indirectly by discussing various sentences that express them. And that's what I shall quite often do in what follows. Now, uh, relational truths fall within the broader class of predicative truths. Other classes of truths, including, for example, uh, quantificational truths, such as something is identical with Mars. But relational truths have the general form, and I won't write it down since it's so simple, uh, Rn, sort of R with a superscript N, bracket, A1, A2, dot, 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 An. So you have N individual constants following a, a, um, an enary relational, an enary predicate, where N is greater than 1. We, we could, in fact, identify re, uh, relational truths with predicative truths if uh, we were prepared if we were prepared to allow uh, monadic predicative truths to qualify as relational in some kind of um, limiting sense. But it's odd, to say the least, to speak of one-place relations. So it's better, I think, to say that relational truths are predicative truths exhibiting at least two argument places. Now, amongst predicative truths, it's important, I believe, and this is a very important aspect of my position, to distinguish between those that involve 
what I call merely formal predication, and those that involve what I call material predication. So the difference, roughly as I understand it, is this. A material predicate denotes some real property, or at least a family of such properties. Understanding a property here to be a universal, although you might cash it out in terms of a class of resembling tropes if you wanted to do that. But I think properties here as you, a property in this sense as a universal. Whereas a formal predicate does not denote some real property in this sense. Uh, in saying, however, in saying that real properties are universals, I don't mean to be opposing the existence of tropes. So I'm not the sort of person who thinks you've got to, if you believe in properties, they, you've got to decide as to whether they're, they are universals or tropes, um, or as I prefer to call them, modes. Uh, I think you can, indeed, I think you should have both. Um, so, because, because I believe that all existing universals must be instantiated, so I accept imminent realism concerning universals, and I regard tropes or modes as their particular instances. So the ins instances of universals are not the objects that exemplify the universals, they are the modes or tropes of those objects uh, which instantiate those property universals. Um, however, at the same time, uh, it seems clear, at least to me anyway, that a material predicate uh, does not denote a trope or mode, only a universal. Of course, you could maybe cash out universal here as a class of if it doesn't denote a, a material predicate does not denote a, a single, a particular individual trope or mode. Uh, as Aristotle puts it in a somewhat different terminology, uh, universals are said of a subject, but modes or individual accidents are not said of a subject, using the terminology at the beginning of the categories. Thus, in the sentence that Mars is red, the predicate denotes redness, the universal, not the particular redness of Mars, its color trope or mode. Now, uh, in truth, things might be really a little bit more complicated than this because it might well be held that there is no universal uh, redness, uh, that is, say, a determinable universal, something that uh, came up yesterday with, um, uh, about determinants and determinables. So we might say, some people want to say there is no determinable universal redness, only various determinants which are precise shades of red. These would still be universals, but determinate universals. Uh, which is why a moment ago I spoke of a material predicate as sometimes denoting a family of universals rather than a unique universal. So if you think Mars is red, do you, if you think red there doesn't, there isn't a determinable universal redness as just the more determinate uh, shades of red, then the predicate can't denote the un such a non-existent un uh, uh, a determinable universal. We've got to somehow denote the family of more determinate or determ fully determinate universals. I, but this is a complication. I'm not, I'm not particularly exercised about this issue. Um, I'm not even, I'm not particularly averse to the idea of determinable universals. Anyway, this is a complication that we can ignore for present purposes. Another and much more significant complication arises, however, when we examine more closely the predicate in a sentence such as Mars is red. Namely, the predicate here I'm taking to be is red. Okay, it's what's left. It's a kind of Phrygian notion of predicate. What's left when you delete the name Mars from the sentence is red, and you get the predicate is red. Now, some philosophers will hold that this predicate, is red, is uh, semantically simple or non-decomposable, with the implication that the is that features in that predicate, is red, has no independent meaning which contributes to the meaning of the predicate as a whole. But for my own part, I'm persuaded to cash out Mars is red, Mars is red, as saying uh, Mars exemplifies redness. That's what it means. 
you say the Mars is red, and I consequently hold, I mean, setting aside the issue about whether there is a determinable universal, forget that. And consequently I hold that the is in Mars is red, is the is of exemplification. It has a, it has a distinctive semantic contribution to me. So in this way, understood in this way, Mars is red, is really a relational predication containing the relational predicate is, or exemplifies. And the remaining, um, the remaining expressions in the sentence denote respectively an individual object, Mars, and a monadic universal, redness. Now I'll say more about this um, shortly. But note that even if we take this view, that uh, you kind of decompose Mars is red into Mars is and red, um, you can still continue to regard, to describe the compound predicate is red, or exemplifies redness. You can still, still take that as a, comp, as a as a predicate in its own right, and the issue is only whether this predicate really is, as I propose, a compound one or is semantically simple. So it's just a question of whether the, the, the sentence or the proposition Mars is red is a relational proposition or, or not. I think it is. So the, the predicate, properly speaking, I mean, the, the simple predicate there is, is, or exemplifies, uh, not, uh, is red. That's a compound predicate. Now, okay, some examples of formal predicates are the following. These are formal predicates where there is no denotation of a universal, right, the predicate. Following examples. Is an object. Is a property. Exists. Is true is identical with and instantiates. The, to none of these does there correspond some um, universal that's denoted by the predicate. Some of these predicates are monadic, for, for example, is an object and exists. Others are relational, for example, is identical with and instantiates. Those are relational formal predicates. Note here that the is in is an object cannot be regarded as the is of exemplification on the view I'm proposing. For that view is that there is no such universal as objecthood, nor consequently are there any tropes or modes that are instances of such a spurious universal. There aren't kind of objecthood tropes. Every object has a, an objecthood trope in addition to the various other tricks, redness and shape and so on. That's a crazy view. When I say uh, that Mars is an object, as opposed to saying it's a property or an event, um, I'm not saying that Mars exemplifies a certain universal, where this is a further entity in addition to Mars. Similarly, when I say that redness is a property. Similarly, too, when I say that Mars exists. So I consider that exists exist, is a first-level formal predicate, which is primitive and indefinable. I do not consider that existence is expressed by the, as I see it, disastrously misnamed existential quantifier, which I therefore prefer to call instead the particular quantifier, the quantifier that translates the English word sum. That it doesn't express... Um, uh, existence is, I think, although this is controversial, <laughs> that it doesn't express existence is shown by the fact that the sentence some things don't exist is not only not self-contradictory, which it would be if the quantifier expressed existence, but very plausibly true. Uh, after all, examples are not hard to find. Mermaid, mermaids don't exist, nor do goblins. However, it, just as it would be a mistake to suppose that exists is really expressed by the particular quantifier, so too it would be a mistake to suppose that as a first level predicate uh, exists a denote, denotes a real property, a universal. After all, if it did, if, if that predicate denoted a universal existence, uh, well that would be something, be an entity, uh, something that exists. So it would be true to say existence exists. But this seems to be, if not nonsense, at least necessarily false. Uh, so the lesson is don't reify existence and don't treat the existence predicate. Even though it's a, f a f first level predicate, it doesn't denote a universal, it's a purely formal predicate.
not a material one. And note that what I say about exists, I likewise would say about the truth predicate, is true. It's a monadic formal predicate. There is no truth universal that all true propositions exemplify, nor are there truth tropes or modes, one for each truth, true proposition. Well, let us now focus on the relational formal predicates that I mentioned earlier. Uh, we're just discussing monadic ones so far, um, like exists and is true. So relational ones, um, I mentioned already, is identical with and instantiates. These are paradigms of this class of predic formal predicates, the relational ones. These are two-place ones. I guess there can be higher place ones, three, four-place ones, perhaps. Um, consider then truths of the type uh, Cicero is identical with Tully. On the present view, the names Cicero and Tully denote entities. In fact, of course, the same entity, if, it, if it's true, given that it's true. Uh, namely, a certain particular man. But the relational predicate is identical with, being a formal one, does not denote any entity whatever. If it did so denote an entity, it would denote a certain relational universal, a two-placed or dyadic one. But it surely does not. It's easy enough to see why we need invoke no such entity in order to explain the truth of the proposition that Cicero is identical with Tully. For it is simply Cicero, a.k.a. Tully, that is the truth-maker of this proposition. Against this, it might be maintained that Cicero can only be the truth-maker of the self-identity proposition that Cicero is identical with Cicero. Well, we're getting into the territory here of Frege's puzzle, and that's, I don't want to go into that here, as it has no real bearing on my claim that the identity predicate is a purely formal one. Let it be said, if someone really wants to say it, that the truth-maker or makers of Cicero is identical with Tully are Cicero and Tully as it were, both of them, if you want to say that, well, do. Uh, but it's still clear that no further relational entity need be invoked to explain the truth of that sentence. Moreover, even if the existence of an identity relation were posited, it wouldn't serve to account for the fact that a thinker might fail to know that Cicero is identical with Tully is true, despite knowing, obviously, that Cicero is identical with Cicero is true. For the identity relation, if it really existed, would be a relation that could hold only between a thing and itself. So that in failing to know that uh, Cicero is identical with Tully is true, a thinker could not be displaying ignorance with respect to a certain relation in which Cicero stands to something. The matters here might be clearer, perhaps, if we were to focus instead on distinctness propositions, such as the proposition that Cicero is not identical with Caesar. And it seems evident that the two entities, Cicero and Caesar, and nothing else, are the truth-makers of this proposition. No further distinctness relation between them need be invoked. As for... Uh, instantiation propositions, consider for example Cicero is a man which expresses the proposition that Cicero is an instance of or instantiates the kind man or consider uh, Mars's colour is red whereby Mars's colour we mean to refer to as to Mars's colour trope or mood its particular colour this expresses the proposition that Mars's colour mode is an instance of or instantiates the colour universal redness. <coughs> Each of these cases, the truth makers of the propositions in question are just a certain particular and a certain monadic universal. Cicero and mankind in the one case, and Mars's colour mode and redness in the other. So to sum up, Truths of identity and instantiation are made true by the entity or entities that are said to be identical or to instantiate and be instantiated. And this is because, using the language of possible worlds, which I don't generally like to do, uh, it's because in any possible world in which the entities or the entity or entities in question exist, it's true that they are identical with one another or that the one 
instantiates the other. Their very existence metaphysically necessitates the truths in question. <coughs> we, don't, we don't need any further truth maker in the form of a, a relational universal or <coughs> relational truths. Um, actually, we can go further than this. There's a way. There's a way in which we can deny that truths of, of identity and instantiation have, or at least need, truth makers at all. We can instead say that they are sim- they are true simply in virtue of the essences of the entities that they concern, and then insist, as as I believe we should in any case, that essences are not entities. So if the, if the idea is that these identity truths and essentiation truths are truths in virtue of the essence, essences of the entities in co- concern, and essences shouldn't be reified as, as entities, then these are, in a sense, truths which don't require truth-makers. Taking a truth-maker to be some entity that, whose existence necessitates the truth of a proposition. I've already proposed that a truth-maker of a proposition P is an entity E, such that it's part of the essence of P, that P is true if E exists. On this account, Cicero is indeed a truth-maker of the proposition that Cicero is identical with Cicero, since it's surely part of the essence of that proposition that it is true if Cicero exists. But, more to the point, it's also surely part of the essence of Cicero, that Cicero is identical with Cicero. And this on its own should suffice to explain the truth of the proposition that Cicero is identical with Cicero. Now, it might be denied, however, this might be denied on the grounds that this proposition, Cicero is identical with Cicero, would not be true if Cicero did not exist. Some people would say that. But why wouldn't it be true? Uh, It would be, in my view, unsatisfactory to argue as follows, to argue that... uh, the sentence Cicero is identical with Cicero entails something is, in, is identical with Cicero. It does entail that. <clears throat> but then contend that the latter, something is identical with Cicero, is logically equivalent to Cicero exists. I've already denied that, <coughs> that uh, idea. That, uh, the particular quantifier expresses <coughs> existence. I am inclined to say that um, Cicero is identical with Cicero is an essential truth which holds, if you like to put it this way, in every possible world, including worlds in which Cicero doesn't exist. (coughs) An essential truth is one that is true in virtue of the essence of some thing or things. But I don't regard a thing's essence as some further entity in addition to the thing in question. If it were, we'd be faced with an apparently vicious infinite regress since every entity has an essence. (coughs) An entity's essence, as I understand this expression, is just what that entity is, or would be. That understanding is clear in uh, Aristotle's original use of the corresponding phrase. So, essence is just an English translation of, I guess, of a medieval scholastic term, essentia, which was used to translate the Aristotelian phrase, uh, the what it is to be, or uh, puts it in various different ways, in various different treatises. Uh, so, uh, so the what it is to be of a thing, its essence, is not itself some further entity, on my view. It's it's what's expressed by a real definition of the thing in question, which should be taken to be entity denoting. So, uh, truths of instantiation, like truths of identity, fall in, into the same category of essential truths. For instance, um, uh, Cicero is essentially a man, Mar- uh, Mars' colour mode is essentially a redness mode, so on. That's not to deny that Mars could, of course, been, could have been differently coloured, since it, it would then have had a different colour mode. So it didn't have to have, Mars didn't have to have the colour mode it actually has. But the colour mode it actually does have is essentially couldn't have failed to be a redness mode. Okay, so to sum up what I've been saying so far about formal predications, <coughs> formal predications, even if they are relational, 
such as identity propositions and instantiation propositions, never require the existence of relational truth-makers. And uh, don't, indeed don't even seem to require truth-makers at all, um, given that they are essential truths and that essences are not entities. Exemplification propositions, it's a slightly different matter, and I, do, I distinguish, as some people don't, between uh, instantiation and exemplification. So, um, Mars is a planet, is an instantiation proposition. It assigns Mars to a certain kind, substantial kind, whereas <coughs> Mars is red, doesn't do that. It attributes to Mars a certain property, Redness or says that Mars exemplifies it. So exemplification propositions, such as the proposition that Mars exemplifies redness, Mars is red, uh, they're rather more complicated than the instantiation propositions. Uh, it's unlike the proposition that Cicero is a man or instantiates the kind man because uh, Mars is red or Mars exemplifies redness is plausibly not an essential truth. Uh, Mars could have been a different colour. And indeed, it appears to, appears to be an entirely contingent truth. Appears to be. But what we should not, certainly not do to explain this contingent truth, that Mars exemplifies redness, is to invoke a relational property of exemplification that can c obtain contingently between Mars and the universal redness. Um, apart from else, you'll see that's going to get us straight into Bradley's regress. Um, all we need as a truth maker of the proposition uh, that Mars is red is Mars's actual color mode, its particular redness. This is what makes it true that Mars is red, that is, that it exemplifies redness. And this is a contingent truth simply because Mars could exist without possessing that color mode, or indeed any color mode of redness. Uh, on the other hand, Mars's redness color mode, it's red, Mars's redness color mode is essentially a redness mode, and is also, it also essentially belongs to Mars. So that, that color mode, given that it exists, it has to be, um, that redness, that, that mode has to be a redness mode, and it, and it has to belong to Mars. Like any world in which that color mode exists is a world in which, uh, it's a redness mode and it belongs to Mars. Consequently, um, in any possible world in which that mode exists, it, in, it, instanti oh, it instantiates redness and belongs to Mars. Hence, in any such world, it's true that Mars is red. That is, that Mars exemplifies redness. So, uh, Mars's color mode is certainly a truth maker, maybe the truth maker, or certainly a truth maker of the proposition that Mars exemplifies redness. So, uh, so we've got a truth maker in this case. It's not a purely formal predication, um, like uh, a dentic proposition. Um, but the truth maker is not some relational entity. It's a monadic uh, color mode. Uh, so the upshot is that exemplifies, unlike instantiates, is not a, a purely formal relational predicate. Rather, a sentence of the form of A exemplifies Fness it has the underlying logical form, some mode M exists, such that M belongs to A, and M instantiates Fness. So there's an implicit uh, uh, existential claim. Uh, suppose that some such mode does exist, some such mode of redness, uh, some such mode exists that is, is both a, a, a mode of A and instantiates Fness, call it R, uh, then R belongs to A is an essential truth, as is R instantiates Fness, um, since both are true in virtue of the essence of R. It's in virtue of the essence of R that uh, uh, it's true that uh, R belongs to A, and it's in virtue of the essence of R that R, that R instantiates Fness. The only contingent truth involved here is the existential truth that R exists. And this obviously has R as its truth maker. So that's all we need. We're done on that, on that, with regard to exemplification propositions. They don't require any relations, real relations. 
So far, my main focus has been on formal predications, and we've only strayed into the territory of material predications in order to explain why the exemplification predicate is not, in fact, a purely formal predicate, unlike the identity and instantiation predicates. Genuinely formal predications never require, for truth-making purposes, the existence of entities of any type whatever as denotations of the predicates concerned. As we've already seen, uh, monadic, monadic, uh, by contrast, monadic material predications do require the existence of properties in order to be true. My view, properties both in the sense of tropes or modes and in the sense of universals. But what about dyadic or more generally polyadic material predications? Okay, so now these are the things really to focus on. Um, where we do have material predication, uh, but it's di- the, the, predication, the predicates in question are dyadic or polyadic. First, let us focus on a special case, those, that are com- those material predications that are commonly said uh, to involve internal relations. I say commonly said, it, I don't like the way of putting it myself. So we're thinking about predicative truths such as Tom is the same height as Sally. Alternatively, Tom is taller than Sam. It's widely agreed that what makes this proposition too, true, Tom is the same height as Sally, what makes it true is just, if it is true, is just two things. Uh, Tom's height and Sally's height. Each of which may be regarded as a trope or mode of the universal height. Uh, sameness of height is commonly said to be an internal relation on the grounds that it's a relation which supposedly uh, supervenes on certain monadic properties of its relata, in this case their heights. Consequently, it's often said that um, this relation between the relata is no addition of being. The same height relation is no addition of being or nothing over and over, nothing over and above the relevant monadic properties of the relata, their respective heights. I don't like this way of talking. It seems to me double talk. Does a same height relation really exist between Tom and Sally or not? Is there a same height universal that they exemplify or a relational same height trope or mode that obtains between them? Well, I can see no reason at all to say so. I can see a reason to say that Tom has a certain height mode, which is monadic, and that Sally does too. And it can certainly be the case that these two height modes are modes of exactly the same universal, a certain determinate height universal, say height of 5 foot 6 inches. Or, if you prefer, that they're exactly similar height modes. Whichever way you put it, it will be an essential truth that those very height modes are modes of exactly the same universal or exactly similar to one another. The only contingency involved in the truth that Tom is the same height as Sally Sally, arises from the fact that both Tom and Sally could have had different height modes from the ones that they actually have. It is thus a purely existential contingency concerning those modes. But if those modes do in fact exist, then it follows of necessity in virtue of the essences of those modes, that Tom is the same height as Sally. No further entity of a relational kind need be posited, neither a, neither a universal nor a trope or mode. Saying that there is a further entity, but that it is a supervenient one or an ontological free lunch, serves no purpose whatever and is metaphysically quite unwarranted. Consequently, we shouldn't seriously believe in the real existence or so-called internal relations, even if it is sometimes convenient to talk as if they existed. There are no internal relations, then. There are just certain relational truths that are made true by monadic entities of certain types, whether these be concrete objects or tropes. Abstract particulars of the latter are sometimes called. Uh, Clearly, however, not all relational material predications can be handled in this way by talking without serious ontological intent about internal relations. Consider next, then, uh, the relational relational predications such as John loves Mary, which has figured in previous previous discussions in this conference. So, John loves Mary. It surely cannot be right to classify the predicate loves here along with is the same height as. Not an internal relation. Uh, 
But here another non-relational explanation is forthcoming instead. What we can say, and I know other people have said something like this, is that what makes true the proposition that John loves Mary is just a certain particular monadic property or mode of John's, albeit one of a rather special kind. It's a mental property or state with intentional content, and the intentional object of that state is Mary. In short, it is a loving trope or mode of John's, with Mary as its intentional object, that makes true the proposition that John loves Mary. That, of course, is where the asymmetry comes from as well. Um, Mary doesn't have to have any such mental state in order to be loved by John. However, it might still be asked here, uh, does not Mary too have to exist in order for this proposition, John loves Mary, to be true? At least in order for Mary to be the intentional object of John's loving trick. Well, I actually think the correct answer to this is no. I think that... Um, Many may not agree with you, but I think that uh, John could love Mary even if Mary did not exist and had never existed. Plausibly, he couldn't love Mary without being able to think about Mary. But uh, what I would say is that in order to do that, he need only be able to grasp Mary's essence. I mean, maybe that's not so easy, but um, if he did grasp Mary's essence, that would be enough for him to be able to think about Mary. So he needs to know or understand what it is or would be for something to be Mary. She doesn't have to actually exist for, him to, for her to be uh, thought about by him, as it were. <laughs> After all, we've acknowledged that mermaid, mermaids don't exist, but John could certainly be infatuated with a certain mermaid, Miranda. He could love Miranda. So at least it seems to me. Now, I know people may dispute this, but even if this position were rejected, if even it was insisted that Mary must exist if John is to love her, we still don't need, do not need to invoke any real relation in order to explain the truth of the proposition that John loves Mary. We just have to invoke the existence of a loving trope of John with Mary as its intentional object and Mary. But what now if it's objected that Mary can only be the intentional object of one of John's mental states if there is indeed some real relation between John and Mary? Well, I, for my part, just don't see why this should have to be so. Uh, even if Mary must exist in order for John to love her, I, I, I still think it, it suffices that he thinks of her in a loving way, and in order to do this, he only, ha he only needs to grasp Mary's essence, if that's possible, not stand in any real relation to her. But supposing you don't agree with me about that. In any case, what sort of real relation could be insisted upon here? You know, what, what kind of real relation between John and Mary would have to exist in order for her to be an intentional object of a loving mode of John's? Well, the only likely claim in this, in this territory would be that the relation in question has got to be a causal one of some kind, since it's hard to see what else could be required. So there is a position, it's a widespread position, I guess, that in order for John to love Mary, there must at least be some causal relations. Mary must not just exist, there must be some causal relation between Mary and John. However, I'm not too disconcerted about that, because I'm, I'm now going to discuss causal propositions, and we're now about to see that real relations are not even required to make true causal truths. So the foregoing objection will fall in any case, at the next hurdle. So we needn't worry too much. We just postponed the issue and we'll now try to settle it. So let's then proceed directly to this further question concerning explicitly causal propositions. I mean, maybe John Loves Mary implies some causal proposition must be true, but now I'm going to talk about explicitly causal propositions. Does not their truth, at least, require the existence of real relations in the form of the causal relation. Or if not one such relation, then a family of causal relations. I, I mean, I, for my part, if, if, if I thought there really were causal relations, I wouldn't be inclined to think there's just one universal causal relation. I'd be inclined to think there'd have to be a, a family of such relations. Okay, well, let's consider a paradigm example of a causal truth, such as the sentence of the proposition, the water is dissolving the salt.
said perhaps of what's going on in some test, test tube in a, in a chemistry laboratory. Now, this sentence, the water is dissolving the salt, plainly entails, even if it's not perhaps logically equivalent to, um, <coughs> the, the water is causing the salt to, to dissolve. So the, the point here is that dissolve is a causative verb. It's not, so you don't, not, not actually mentioning the, the word causation when you say that the water is dissolving the salt, but the implication is that um, the water is causing the salt to dissolve. So let's focus on the latter truth where causation is explicitly mentioned and ask what makes such a proposition true, the water is causing the salt to dissolve. Well my answer in brief is this, that um, certain causal powers and liabilities and their respective manifestations make such a proposition true. Now clearly um, the water is causing the salt to dissolve can be true only if the, power, if the water has a power to dissolve salt and the salt a liability to be dissolved by water. I mean, the salt has to be water-soluble and the, and the water has to be um, a solvent of salt, if you like. Um, but the truth in question, the water is causing the salt to, dis to dissolve, uh, doesn't just require the existence of, to be true, it doesn't just require the existence of those powers, it requires those powers to be manifested on the particular occasion in question. Now, very plausibly, uh, causal powers and liabilities are monadic properties of the objects that possess them. And in saying this, I'm, I'm in full agreement with what uh, George Molnar said in his book on powers. After all, water would plausibly still have the power to dissolve salt even in a saltless world. It's just that its water-dissolving power could never be manifested in such a world. And as has been remarked by Molnar and indeed by C.B. Martin, causal powers are in a way rather like intentional states such as loving. They are, as it were, directed at other objects of various kinds but don't require the actual existence of those objects. Um, so that's as far as the powers are concerned, they're monadic, they're not relational entities. Um, but as for the manifestations of causal powers, then they equally appear to be monadic properties of the objects in question. Um, the water's power to dissolve salt is manifested on this occasion by the dissolving of the salt. Okay, that's the manifestation, the dissolving of the salt, and this is something which is simply happening to the salt as such. I mean, there may be something happening to the water as well, but insofar as the water is dissolving the salt, the manifestation of its power to dissolve the salt is, consists in the dissolving of the salt. And that's a pro monadic property of the salt. Um, here it may be objected, it's not enough to secure the truth of the proposition that the water is dissolving the salt merely that the water should have the power to dissolve the salt, the water, the, uh, the, 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 the water should have the power to dissolve the salt, the salt, the liability to be dissolved by water, and the salt be dissolving. Okay, it's not enough that they have the, they have the respective powers and the salt be dissolving. It, it has to be also the case that the salt is being dissolved by the water, not by anything else, nor must it be, as it were, dissolving spontaneously. And that observation is perfectly correct as far as it goes. However, what we can say in response to it is the following. The salt must indeed not merely be dissolving, but what is additionally required is just that its dissolving on this occasion should be a manifestation of the water's power to dissolve salt. So on this view, a causal power is precisely one, any manifestation of which consists in something going on in an object that may be, and usually is, distinct from the bearer of the power, although one that must, of course, possess a corresponding liability. I think I've learned some things from what Anna has said to say on these matters. Whether I've interpreted it correctly is another matter, but um, it's been helpful. So, um, now to say that the manifestation of the water's power on a certain occasion is a property belonging to the salt namely it's dissolving on this particular occasion, is not to posit a real relation of any kind between the water and the salt. For a particular manifestation of a power, qua manifestation of it, doesn't stand to the bearer of that power in any real relation at all. 
And this is because they are not really entirely distinct existences, to use a phrase that uh, Hume liked to use. Uh, he denied it. Uh, he said all real existences are distinct, but I'm denying it. So a manifestation of this particular power could not exist in the absence of this power, even though this particular power could exist in the absence of this or any other manifestation of it. So there's, an, there's a one-way dependency of manifestations upon the powers that they are manifestations of. I mean, a manifestation must, uh, it depends, as it were, uh, existentially, essentially, indeed, upon its, the power that it's a manifestation of. But the power can, uh, obviously can exist without any, without having any, any manifestations. So, if the salt dissolving is a manifestation of the water's power, then it is so essentially, and hence necessarily. We may say, if we please, that the power and its manifestation stand in a relation, inverted commas, a relation of asymmetrical existential dependency, but such ontological dependency facts do not involve real relations, in my sense. They don't involve special relational universals or truths. So I conclude, although full discussion of this matter would require much more extensive treatment, I, I conclude that real relations, in that sense, real universals or tropes, are not needed, they don't need to be posited in order to account for causal truths, provided that we accept an ontology of powers of the sort I've just been sketching, whereby you have these essential connections between manifestations and powers and so forth. We just, so it, it, the upshot is that the truth makers of that proposition, the water is dissolving the salt, just, well, they are the, they are indeed the two powers, well, the, the two powers, the power of the salt and the liability of the power of the water and the liability of the salt, and the manifestation of the water's power, which is a monadic property of the salt. Okay, and it's, um, being a manifestation of that power is an essential truth about that uh, particular property. Now, so far, I have dismissed as being not, as it were, really real, um, relations of the, follow the following kinds of relations, so-called relations. Formal relations, like identity and instantiation. Internal relations, like being the same height as being taller than. Intentional relations, like loving. And causal relations, like dissolving. So what, what do we have remaining as putatively real so-called or so-called external relations. The most likely candidate, as other people have observed, <coughs> appear to be spatial and temporal relations, such as being earlier than, being simultaneous with, being between, either spatially or temporally, being five meters away from, so forth. Now, since I, and this is just a foible of mine, I tend towards presentism in the philosophy of time, I'm not too much concerned by the putative reality of temporal relations. According to presentism, there aren't really any cross-temporal relations because there aren't really different times for them to relate. As for simultaneity, it amounts effectively to coexistence on this view, which again doesn't qualify as a real relation, since existence itself doesn't qualify as a real property. That is, a universal with tropes as its instances. So that leaves us, uh, if, you, if you were happy with presentism, it leaves us just with spatial relations. Now, of course, presentism might well be mistaken. It certainly has been frequently challenged. And if it is mistaken, then most plausibly some relativistic theory of space, time, space and time is correct according to which, as Minkowski famously put it, space and time fade away as separate entities in favor of a unitary four-dimensional four space-time in which entities are separated by space-time relations. Space-time, in one word, not, not spatial relations or temporal relations really. Although you can cook, I mean, there are these space-like and time-like separations, but that, that's kind of just... To, to make it more accommodated to the manifest image, if you like, the, the underlying reality is just a, a block universe of four-dimensional manifold of events standing in uh, space-time relations, space-time separations which are frame-invariant. If that's so, if that picture is right, then what I'm about to say about classical three-dimensional space can be adapted to such a space-time theory, so I'll say no more about the latter.
Um, of course, I, I might mention here just in passing, on a causal theory of time or space-time, uh, we could simply appeal to the non-reality of causal relations to deny the reality of temporal or spatiotemporal ones. So given what I said about causal relations earlier, that they're not real relations, if you had a causal theory of time or space-time, then um, you'd have the resources to deny the reality of uh, spatial and temporal or spatiotemporal ones, uh, relations as well. But I won't pursue that line of thought here. Uh, well, okay, so let's focus on spatial relations, the last and best case for people who want to think there really are real relations, real relational entities in the world. Um, at first blush, spatial relations appear to be external relations because we speak as though objects can change their spatial relations to one another without changing in respect of any of their so-called intrinsic properties. For example, two qualitatively indistinguishable material spheres can seemingly move nearer to or further apart from one another without changing in respect of any of their qualities. They can undergo change, it seems, purely in respect of their they undergo can undergo change, it seems, purely in respect of their their, their distance relations uh, to one another. And these are contingent on this view. These are contingent relations that can, because they can change. The spheres which happen to be two miles apart could have, could have been or could come to be three miles apart. So there were, these won't be essential truths on this view, that they are that far apart. Note, however, that whatever we might say about the spheres um, and their distance relations, we plainly can't say the same with regard to distance relations between parts of space itself. Parts of space cannot move with respect to one another, and so their distance relations, if there are such relations, are internal and hence not real. Um, in point of fact, I should say, though, I don't think we should really speak of space itself as having parts, uh, if indeed there is such a thing as space. If space, if it is real, there's some real entity, some fiction or something, if space is real, it should be thought of as being an extended simple, on my view. We may still speak of there being different regions of space on this view, provided that we don't think of space as being composed of those regions. Otherwise, you could remove a region of space and be left with the rest of space. It just makes no sense. It's not a composite object in that sense. But the former point that I made earlier um, in terms of parts of space still holds. Different regions of space, while they may be said to be near or far from one another, and their de degree of separation may be in principle measured, do not stand to one, one another in, in any real external distance relations. Because th those uh, relational truths about them are essential or necessary truths, not contingent ones. And uh, this fact immediately gives, way, gives us a way to deny that material objects ever really stand in such real real. Uh, distance relations either. I mean, given that the regions of space don't stand in real, there are no real relations which relate this, the regions of space, there's a way to, a rather radical way, but a way to deny that uh, material objects um, stand in such real external distance relations. Uh, we, can, we can simply deny that what we call material objects are genuinely movable occupants of space. We can, and I think... Um, a number of other people mentioned this maybe in, in this conference, we can regard the so-called uh, movement of a material object as a successive, as it were, the successive densifying of a continuous series of regions of space. So that as a, as a billiard ball moves, as we put it, across the billiard table surface, what is really happening is that the material density of a series of spherical regions of space undergoes successive increase and decrease in a continuous fashion rather as the so-called movement of a, wa of a wave rolling into the beach. There isn't really anything that is moving into the beach. It's just, it just this phenomenon just consists in a, the successive increase and decrease of the sea's level in a series of regions across the seabed. So since on this view space has no movable occupants, just regions of variable density, um, only the regions can be near to or far from one another, and their distance relations, as we just remarked, are internal, so not real. 
So on this view, there are no real spatial relations either. Now, um, the foregoing view is, of course, a rather radical one, although one which is in some ways rather appealing and reminiscent of certain things that Spinoza and Descartes seems to have, seem to have believed. So, and, and maybe also maybe in the sort of thing that one should be inclined to believe uh, on the, in the light of modern physics, development theories like quantum field theory, maybe that's probably, well, maybe that's the right way to think about motion. I don't know. Um, but uh, since it still is highly controversial it's best for me not to let the denial of the reality of relations rely upon this more radical ontology but I actually think there's a way we can deny the reality of spatial relations even if we accept that space can have movable occupants such as material objects that are distinct, that are distinct from regions of space Clearly, we can say that the distance between two such objects, two material objects, is just the distance between the regions of space that they occupy. And the latter, relation, the latter distance relation is not a real relation. So the, the, the two spheres are two miles apart in virtue of um, the regions that they occupy being two miles apart. And their being two miles apart isn't a matter of some real relation obtained between those regions. Um, so, so far so good, but of course this still leaves us with what might appear to be a real relation, namely the occupation relation between a material object and a certain region of space. But, and here it gets speculative again, arguably this also is not real in my sense, that is not, you don't have to invoke a real relational universal or real relational truths to um, accommodate this occupation relation or truths of occupation, should we say, that such and such an object occupies such and such a region of space. Here's what we can say. We can say um, <coughs> that a material object occupies a region of space just in case the outer surface of that object constitutes the boundary of that region. Okay, just in case the outer surface of the object constitutes the boundary of the region. Now, I'm, I'm just, for the sake of simplicity, I'm restricting myself here in thought, at least, the examples I have in mind are, are I'm restricting them to simply connected objects such as solid spheres. But I, I think the account, the account can be easily extended to more com complicated, more complexly shaped objects such as torus-shaped objects, hollow spheres, and so on. I'm just not going to get into all of that. So I'm just thinking of things like um, these solid spheres. Um, so the idea is that the, you've got a solid sphere material object uh, the, the outer surface of that object, when the outer surface of that object const constitutes the boundary of a certain region, that it's in virtue of that that the material object can be said to occupy that region. <coughs> now, at this point, I need to explain that, on my view, where, as I said earlier, on this conception, space is an extended simple. So on the conception of space as being extended simple, <coughs> its regions do not possess actual boundaries, actual boundaries, until these are provided by material objects occupying them. Thus there would be no actual boundaries between the different regions of a completely empty space, if there could be such a space. But when a material object occupies a region of space, the outer surface of the object provides the region with an actual boundary, which just is that surface. So I'm not saying that the object's outer surface, I'm not, I'm not saying that the object's outer surface merely coincides with the region's boundary. That would simply displace the occupation relation from the object in its region to the object's surface and the region's boundary. I'm saying rather that the region's boundary is the object's outer surface. And it is in this very fact of identity that the object's uh, occupation of the region consists. So if that's right, occupation is explained in terms of identity. And identity, we have agreed, is not a real but a merely formal relation. Um, we have to say a bit more here to accommodate movement because when the... Um, if the, if the sphere moves its location, then uh, we have a different, a different actual boundary of a different region is, is somehow created. Um, 
And you, if you identified uh, this, this, if you identified the surface with the act, those two distinct actual boundaries, you'd have a, a violation of laws of identity. So what you have to say is that is something like that. The outer, what we're thinking of the outer surface here is a is a spatial mode, two-dimensional spatial mode of the spherical object, and that when this movement occurs, um, we get a succession of such spatial nodes. So the movement, what is required for movement on the view that is that the object undergoes, that it exchange its original um, spherical mode for a exactly similar but numerically distinct spatial mode. I think we have to say something like that. That may cause some puzzlement in itself, but I think this, so this is just a speculative idea, but I think it's one which in principle could work. Um, what, if it does work, what we've what we've, done, what we've done, we've done away with any need to appeal to real relations between material objects and space, or between different material objects, um, even without reducing such objects as regions of space, in the, in the, as, as we did in the first sort of more Spinozan kind of view. Um, so we're, we're retaining the idea that um, material objects are movable occupants of space, but we're now trying to explain the occupancy relation, or truths of, relational truths of occupation, in terms of um, exist existential truths about um, spherical, as it were, or spatial, spatial modes of the movable objects, and they are there, and the fact that they constitute or create boundaries, actual boundaries in space. It's all highly speculative. It's just a, a way one could go. I mean, it may be not the best way to go, but just it shows that there might be ways to go uh, to, to eliminate, as it were, real spatial relations, even without going down the, the more radical ontological route. Um, uh, I have to point out, I, 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 I mean, obviously here that, um, and just in case anyone read out, the, the relation between an object and its surface is, again, not a real one. Okay, the, the surface, as, as I say, is a spatial trope or mode of the object, and hence uh, ontologically dependent on it. So you wouldn't get another relation coming in. You know, you've got the uh, the surface uh, constituting the boundary of the region occupied by the object. Now you've got the problem of the relation between the surface and the object. That's not a, that's not a real relation. That's just a uh, that's just a relation of a of a mode or trip to its bearer, which is not a real relation. Um, so, or similarly, too, uh, obviously, an object can only occupy a region that has the same shape as the object, but having the same shape as is, once again, an internal relation, and so, again, not really real. Um, so, I, I mean, this does seem to be a way to go. I mean, I haven't worked out the details, and maybe there are other ways of a similar kind which would be better. Um, so even the really recalcitrant, seemingly recalcitrant case of spatial relations is, seems amenable to um, this kind of this sort of acid, the, the universal acid, which uh, dissolves away all relations. Um, of course, a possibility I haven't yet explicitly considered is that of a purely relational theory of space. I mean, treating space or space-time as some sort of quasi-substance, I suppose, extended simple, I called it. Um, and indeed, I cannot accommodate a theory according to which the relations in question that is, a relational theory of space or space-time according to which the relation questions are conceived as being external relations between objects or events. I can't, obviously I can't accommodate such a, such a view. Um, however, I, sus I suspect that the most plausible option for a relational theory of space would be one which regarded uh, spatial relations or perhaps more generally spatio-temporal relations as being ultimately causal in nature. I've been, I've been throughout trying to, as we eliminate uh, relational entities from our ontology, showing out ways in which this can be done. But, you know, but when you say, why am I doing? What, what is the motivation? What, what is wrong? What is so wrong with putatively real relations? Well, my basic answer, and this again has come up in some other papers, is that um, I side with those who think that these entities would be ontologically weird in some way. This is especially apparent if you assume that real, real universals require real tropes or modes as their particular instances, as I do. <clears throat> a relational trope or mode would be an abstract particular 
that was dependent for its existence and identity on two distinct and, and quite possibly independent objects. Thus, if um, a loving troop, such as John's love for Mary, were genuinely a relational troop of the pair of objects, John and Mary, then it would depend for its existence and identity on both John and Mary, even though John and Mary are independent objects, either of which could exist, could exist without the other. So what would happen to that relational loving troop if, say, Mary ceases to exist? Apparently it too must cease to exist, even though it still has John to depend on. Why isn't that enough? I mean, after all, a bridge often, can often still stand if one of its pillars is destroyed. Well, here it may be replied that plausible example of, examples of objects which depend for their existence and identity on a plurality of mutually independent entities, they're easy to find. Any set that contains two or more mutually independent members is such an object. It depends for its existence and identity on a multiplicity of objects, each of which, all of which are independent of each other. Um, however, we can see how, in a sense, a set is simply constituted by its members. Not in the sense of having its members as parts, but still constituted in some sense. For their existence, the existence of the members, suffices metaphysically for the existence of the set. But a loving troop, conceived as a relational entity, can't be regarded as being constituted by its relata. Their existence doesn't suffice metaphysically for its existence. A loving trope between, as it were, John and Mary would have to exist in addition to John, but also in addition to Mary. And not just in the sense that a monadic trope of John exists in addition to John. For such a trope is still contained wholly within John. The putative relational loving trope would somehow have to exist outside John, and also outside Mary, while at the same time depending on both of them, in something like the way in which a monadic trope depends upon the object that it is, is its sole bearer. So it would, as the well-known Leibnizian criticism observes, such a relational loving trope would need to have a leg in each of two distinct substances without being wholly in either or both of them. And recall here the Aristotelian idea that individual accidents, which are not said of a subject, are nonetheless in a subject. A relational accident, if there could be such a thing, would be would not be in, or at least not be wholly in, any of its two or more subjects, nor even nor even wholly in the totality of them. I consequently find it hard to conceive what such an entity could really be. Monadic modes or individual accidents could be seen as particularized ways objects or individual substances are. They are adjectival upon their substances being aspects of them which can be contemplated by abstracting away from other aspects of the same substances or from those substances as wholes. But how can there be some aspect, some aspect of a pair of substances which can be contemplated by abstracting away from those substances as wholes? <coughs> a pair of substances is not a substance, so how can it, or rather they, have an abstractable aspect? Until this apparent mystery, mystery can be demystified, I think we should be sceptical about the very notion of a relational mode or individual accident. But since it appears from our foregoing considerations that they would in any case probably serve no useful ontological purpose, we maybe should not spend too much try, time trying to de demystify them. So.